Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is New Books in Science Fiction and Fantasy. I'm your host, Rob Wolf. Today we're going to be talking about science fiction, of course, but we'll be asking a question. Can fiction about science influence the course of real science? That, as I understand it, is one of the hopes of my guest today, Catherine Kramer, the co-editor of a new collection of short stories called Hieroglyph, Stories and Visions for a Better Future. Catherine is a writer and a critic who has co-edited the year's best fantasy and year's best SF series. Welcome to New Books in Science Fiction and Fantasy. Thank you. Thank you very much. So as I understand it, you're on kind of a mission, aren't you, to steer science fiction away from its current fixation, perhaps, on dystopias and try to point it in a new direction. And I thought, briefly at least, you could explain the origin uh, for the project and you know how it connects to this larger project called the Hieroglyph Project. Well, I guess first I'm going to start by saying what's good about dystopias. Um, we can all point to like 1984 or more recently something like um, Cory Doctorow's Little Brother or the works of Paolo Bacigalupi as good dystopias that are cautionary tales that show us what to avoid or show us what's wrong with the system. Um, However, a lot of the dystopias out there are not like that. That what what they are is using you know a sort of tired furniture of everything has gone to hell, so our central character doesn't have to worry too much about that, um, but only needs to wor- worry about his or her, her own survival, and we can get on with the plot. And when when we talk about sort of tired dystopias, we're not talking 1984 or Little Brother. We're talking about you know the the the, the uh, dystopia as furniture, and instead are asking for a science fiction that actually addresses problems and tries to solve them. Um, so it's a kind of neo Gernsbachian science fiction where we are envisioning science fiction that has, on the one hand, a really good story and interesting characters, and on the other hand, 
um, engages with uh, science, science and technology and ex- thinks about what science and technology could do to make the world better. This sort of came together around a Neil Stevenson essay that is actually serves as the, um, is it the foreword in your book? I think it's the foreword. <laughs> there's, there's introductions, prefaces, forewords, and so on, and they all have careful definitions, but I, I think it's the, the foreword, yeah. No, it's actually the preface. I'm oh, preface, right. okay, yeah. I, don't, I, I, <laughs> I put it all together very carefully, and the book has one of each, um, but I don't remember the definitions off the top of my head. Okay, so um, Neil had the idea that science fiction should, you know, try to solve problems. And this was came partly out of a conversation with Arizona State University's uh, President um, Michael Crow. And Neil had been complaining that uh, we were relying on technology from past decades for crucial pieces of infrastructure. Part of the object of meditation um, for this was um, the Fukushima meltdowns. And Neil was complaining that we were relying on these older technologies and instead of inventing new ones. And Michael Crow blamed this on science fiction writers saying it's because you guys aren't writing, you know, new visionary works for us to be inspired by. And Neil, you know, rose to the challenge and, and after some discussion with uh, ASU, brought about this uh, hieroglyph project. Um, I was first contacted by Neil uh, asking, you know, whether I'd be interested in editing this and, and you, know, inter- you know, technologically optimistic science fiction. I was not immediately a convert to this idea. Uh, it took, I mean, it actually took uh, editing the book. You know, initially I knew I could do this book because um, I'm, I'm, my real expertise is in hard science fiction. But I, it took a while for me to really engage with this idea and realize that this was sort of like learned helplessness, like people feeling like they can't change their daily lives and therefore not trying, and that science fiction had sort of fallen into talking to itself or or borrowing dystopian environments to tell stories that were really unrelated to solving society's problems, and that we really could do better. And I'm really delighted with how the book worked out. I wonder uh, if anyone had previously really looked at the relationship between science fiction and science and culture. You know, ha- have there ever been any studies empirically or even anecdotally where someone's tried to list, you know, ideas or uh, whether whether they're actually things that result in, in hard, actual inventions, concrete inventions, or whether it's more conceptual? Well, I mean, there's a short, short list of obvious examples, and there are thousands of examples of things that exist in the world, real, real world that are preceded in science fiction. Um, a lot of the time, they're, you know, some gizmo off in the distance um, in a story about something else. So it's it's really hard to tally exactly what, was inspired by science fiction or what ideas happen at the same time. And, you know, one person happens to be an inventor, another person has to be a ri- happens to be a writer. But what we know is that science fiction has been a continuing inspiration to scientists and technologists, and that this has been going on for as long as science fiction has had the name. Um, we also know that it's hard to build something you can't envision, and that one of the ways to envision something is to write a story about it. 
so you know it's there there's not a you know a long marching history of science science fiction creating science but there is an you know a symbiotic relationship between science fiction and science uh, science that we know about and just what are some of the more uh you know, common examples that you might give of ideas that perhaps started in the mind of a writer and the imagination of a writer? Well, I mean, robots, spaceships, you know, things like that. I mean, and and the other thing to remember about things like space travel is the first time that somebody wrote a story about travel to the moon, it was not a well-worked-out idea. Um, It was probably a pretty ridiculous idea. Um, And uh, that these things evolve over time. Um, another thing to remember is that 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 ideas have their time and they get talked about. It's not, you know, single inventors coming up with an idea that then goes beyond goes on to be something. It's explorations of ideas over time. Right. I mean, I would think you know some of the writers are actually just picking up on the zeitgeist and those ideas are already out there. Perhaps they're articulating them or, as you say, uh, you know, filling in the picture, helping complete the vision, but. Perhaps right. they they didn't it didn't actually originate with them, but it was it was already in the air. People were already, I mean, for for, for since since time immemorial, people have speculated what the moon is actually made of and and imagining visiting it, that sort of thing. Right. Yeah. I mean, we, we on some things are envisioned by a single person, and then they go on to be developed by by somebody. Sometimes the person who envisioned it in the first place, and sometimes not. But that process of visualization over time is is really important, and it's one of the things science fiction has to contribute. Um, science fiction makes it easier to understand and grasp those concepts and work with it, and that's, I think, one of the things we have to contribute. And so the book is called Hieroglyph, but then there's this sort of larger umbrella called the Hieroglyph Project, and what's the relationship uh, between the two of them? Well, the Hieroglyph Project is, um, well, I mean, one thing to, to understand is we were not able to fully implement every single thing that Neil envisioned. Um, there was a software infrastructure um, created by Subitai, um, the same corporation that had the, 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 the client Kickstarter, et cetera, which was a, a wonderful sort of um, uh, it was, it was uh, the pulp publishing project, which could have been a kind of greenhouse for authors to create, you know, either individual novels or collaborative works and so on, and have a paying audience as they go on and so on. And that was really supposed to be part of what Hieroglyph was. Um, and uh, there, you know, there, there were... You know, the, the the software that we hoped for never made it out of beta, and so we kind of re- recreated a shadow version of what Neil had envisioned as that collaborative infrastructure. So we do have a, a website for discussion, but the kind of, you know, uh, thing with a, a publishing infrastructure in which you can have a paying audience supporting your work while you're creating the thing was something that we were not able to implement. So not every single thing that was part of that initial vision got implemented. What we implemented was a single anthology. Now, we also want to do more anthologies, and we also want to um, broaden the Hieroglyph Project uh, to other media, such as film and television, 
um, and to some extent through the, uh, our collaboration with the, uh, the, the World Bank on a Evoke project, we're already broadening it into the graphic novel game environment. So, you know, we have a book. It's, the book is the beginning, not the end. It's, the, it's a starting place. We've got a finished product. But there's a much larger vision about how um, science, science and technology can interact with science fiction. The book, though, is more than just a book because, as you say, there is a website and each story is actually followed by aids or an ex a continuation through the website of conversations uh, between the author and other people or people who are responding to the ideas presented in the story. So so really, it's kind of a new it's it's a book in, a, in an attempt to be a little a little bit bigger than just just the book, obviously. Well, I mean, it's been a tremendous palette to paint on. Um, uh, you know, first of all, uh, we have the, po I mean, uh, the support of a, a major university. I think this is, I mean, it's pretty much unique in my experience and in my knowledge that not only would you have scientists supporting writers, but they would be doing it with the full support and approval of their academic institution um, and in fact, with the backing of the president of the university. So um, we have an, a, a wonderful, unique situation in which we had a lot more enthusiasm and support from the scientists working at the university than I've, that I've known of in any situation for any, any science fiction anthology, let alone, you know, novel. Well, tell, tell me how that works, because, I mean, I, I, I get the sense, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that you're almost you're creating a new method for inventing a story. It's not, it's not the writer working in isolation, but all the writers in this book have actually consulted with some of the scientists you're speaking of at Arizona State University, who are, I guess are affiliated with this, uh, the Center for Science and the Imagination, which your co-editor, Ed Finn, uh, helped found at Arizona State University. So, so each story, in a sense, although you know, it bears the author's name, uh, is underpinned by, if I understand, conversations with real scientists who kind of inform some of the science that the writers then leap ahead into the future with and imagine, you know, where it might go. Yeah, I should say there are a couple of people like Greg Benford and Rudy Recker involved in the project um, who didn't particularly need that kind of support because they already function that way. Um, but in general, yes, there, there was that um, collaboration between writers and scientists um, what we, uh, w one sort of elaboration on that we tried this week, this past week, um, with the, um, Ur urgent evoke project, um, through the world bank, um, it's, which is a graphic novel and game environment, um, aimed at getting, um, people about college age to, uh, take sort of, uh, innovative initiative in their communities, um, we put uh, writers, most of whom were from the Hieroglyph Project, together with area experts. Each we, we were, There were like six tables, and so um, each table had one writer, um, two or three area experts, and an artist. And so the artist would like draw what we were talking about, and we were able to spin out plot ideas and have the area experts shoot us down in real time so we didn't like write stuff and then have them say no, 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 and then have this go on for months. Rather, we had very fast plot development. And, you know, we, the conventional wisdom is that fiction written by a committee is worse than fiction written by an individual. But um, I had, you know, some of the top writers in the field sitting there in that room, and I was, you know, really happy with our team. 
And my feeling is that what we were producing was aesthetically better than if the writer were sitting there all by themselves and then showed it to somebody after they'd been working on it for a few weeks. But now I'm just playing the devil's advocate here, but are you, is that, is that restraining the writer's imagination in some way? I mean, what's wrong with trying to leap ahead? I mean, a scientist wouldn't necessarily know what the next hundred years would bring or 500 years and, you know, things that might not seem plausible now or even scientifically possible might be. I mean, I'm just kind of throwing that out there. Uh, um, Well, okay. I mean, I was not at other tables. So my team, I had um, a a wonderful artist and I had some area experts on um, nuclear weapons proliferation. And um, we had, you know, the the goal was to to make college-age people aware of what the actual situation is with nuclear weapons proliferation and to empower them to feel like they could do something about this. And um, I'm, you know, reasonably knowledgeable for being a science fiction writer, but not, I'm not an area expert. And um, I did have this, you know, weird hobby of, of researching private military contractors and so on. So I so, know sort of the ins and outs of some kinds of intrigues. But I could come up with plots and have um, them say, no, this kind of thing doesn't work like that, and explain to me what the reality of it is. And then I could revise my idea based on what reality says. So it wasn't impeding my imagination in terms of, um, you know, uh, what, what kind of plots I could come up with. Rather, it was preventing mistakes. And, um, I, you know, I think we ended up with something really cool, um, which will end up in, in the evoke, in, in the evoke scenario, but, um, uh, ha- ha- being able to go through, you know, as it were development cycles, you know, it's, it's sort of like, um, uh, agile development, agile software development, you know, it, it was a lot more like that. Which than, is what, you know, like self-correcting, like, think, yeah, think where you get to make, where you get, where you have pivot points that, that prevent you from making mistakes that you invest a lot of materials in. Um, you know, it does, t- it takes a long, it, it, if you've written a couple of hundred pages, it takes you a while to divert back to where you need to be. And this w- was kind of what I imagine agile software development would be like. Um, now, this is not to say that this is how Hieroglyph as such was written. Hieroglyph as such was really authors sitting down and writing what they wanted to write, and then we put them in in in, in contact with scientists to, to verify it. But as a literary experiment, I found this extremely satisfying, and I think all of the other writers um, who were part of our, our work last week were, were also really happy with it. Um, we had uh, Carl Schrader, Madeline Ashby, Kim Stanley Robinson, uh, Brenda Cooper, um, Jim Cambius, and I may be forgetting someone, but um, it was uh, it was a really it was a really you know top rank bunch. I mean, every all of the writers in that room were people I'd put in my year's best science fiction, and um, I think we were doing great work. Well, tell me, I mean, it seems like a very dynamic situation. You've got lots of, you know, great minds being really creative. And I imagine that the project, as it was first envisioned, has certainly evolved. So can you tell me how, how it has changed, what you've learned by going through going through this uh, collaborative process and producing this book? Well, I mean, initially, uh, Neil and Michael Crow, Neil Stevenson and Michael Crow had had a hypothesis, which is that if you put science fiction writers to the task of actually solving problems and not be, and uh, as opposed to 
you know, doing something more comfortably dystopian, that they would able to influence the patent, the the path of science and technology. Now, you know, we are not we have our development cycle, such as it is, has not been long enough for us to be able to say whether or not hieroglyph can or will influence the path of science and technology on a larger scale. Um, but it was there was was kind of an abstract idea, um, and we chose writers, we chose, how, you know, whether it made choices about um, how to talk to them about the problems they were defining and so on. Um, the choice we made um, in terms of the selection of writers is we drew heavily upon um, writers that I had reprinted in the year's best science fiction and writers that whom I thought of as hard science fiction writers. Neil had recruited a certain number of people um, to start with, but then we filled it out to the, to the total book. And one of the choices we made was, um, political diversity. Um, so it's not all one political point of view. Another choice we made was to phrase the, the specs so, such that there was stylistic diversity. So, so that we had a writer, you know, writers like Vandana Singh, who's a, a physicist from India, who is very much a hard science fiction writer, but writes a very, very different kind of science fiction than, you know, Heinlein Clark Asimov. Um, and um, so having this sort of range of both stylistic and political points of view um, gave us a, a different texture to the implementation than if we'd simply said we want stuff like Heinlein, Clark, and Asimov. Um, and um, another way in which our implementation is different, um, well, one choice we made, I mean, I don't know whether Neil would have made the same choice or not, was rather than you know vetting their choice of problems to solve, one of the things we could have done is say, okay, what do you want to write about? And we could say yes or no based on that we decided to trust our writers and um, let them decide not only what the solutions were, but what the problems were. Um, I think if we go forward with subsequent volumes, we'll probably do things more focused on area issues. Um, But as our first time out, we we let the writers choose the problems and what they thought of were the problems is almost as interesting as what they think the solutions are. But when you say area issues, you mean you'll assign certain areas? Well, I think we might, you know, I mean, uh, hypothetically speaking, and, you know, we we would like to do something on uh, climate change or an area that was almost completely neglected in in the current volume that I think is one that really needs its attention, uh, that hieroglyphs attention is the is genomics um so you know individual writers sat and thought about what they thought the problems of the world were and and came up with solutions um uh, but uh they're not it's not an even representation of all of the solutions the world needs or all of the problems one might might decide upon we let them we let them do what they felt they wanted to do and and the focus in in hieroglyph and will it could is hard science, as you've said. Will it continue to be hard science? Because I, I do think one of the strains of science fiction is also, I mean, it's not just the, the soft science idea, but, you know, when, when a, a story explores the dimensions of, you know, the way society is structured, you know, equality or justice, you know, whether it's a, a I mean, I guess perhaps that verges in the area of the, the dystopic, but then, of course, on the flip side are the y- utopias. And are there is there room in a in a hieroglyph like project for uh, 
um, certain utopic descriptions of plausible societies where maybe resources are more equitably distributed or, you know, things we see today as problems are resolved and envisioned through um, science fiction. But maybe instead of consulting with physicists, they consult with political scientists or psychologists or sociologists. Well, uh, I think we took the hard science fiction approach and methodology, but not necessarily that subject matter. Um, for example, Madeleine Ashby took on the subject of immigration um, and immigration policy so that she's got a kind of world-building hard science fiction approach, but is taking on something that's you know, sociological and has to do with social justice and, 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 and so on. Um, I think in terms of the, the kind of thing we're doing, the hard science, quote, soft science distinction um, isn't quite the way it cuts. I think that the, it's the methodology. And one, you know, one, of the, one of the things that we allowed writers to do and that we thought was appropriate was to define social justice as a problem worth solving. And so it's not just can we get to space or can we get from here to the moon, but can we make better decisions or can we have borders in which large numbers of people don't die in the desert? Um, those are legitimate problems to be solved. In fact, perhaps the, the problem of having borders where la large numbers of people don't die in the desert is a more legitimate problem than how we get from here to the moon. So there are a lot of ideas in the in the collection. There are 17 stories, I think. Is that right? Uh, yeah, about 17 stories. You know, which is the closest of the ideas there, do you think? Most easily implementable? Yeah, most easily, or most likely, I guess, is what I was thinking to be Oh, implemented. well, the one that I would, you know, say, uh, if somebody, if they were all pitching their ideas in front of me and I had a million dollars and said, and I could put them in one of them, I would put it in Carl, Carl Schrader's um, uh, idea for the, for you know, the, the, the system whereby you get people to find common bases of communication as a way for forming political systems that work much more by consensus than our political systems do now. Um, his story, uh, Degrees of Freedom, um, has, a, you know, a description of, uh, a, you know, a, a new kind of political process mediated by technology um, in which a lot of the traditional or, well, not so much traditional, but contemporary political structures are rendered obsolete by people actually just communicating better and able to arrive at, at joint conclusions. Um, and I, would, I, I read that story. I thought, this would work. I'd put money in this. And is there one that you think is going to be a long way off? Well, uh, I think Benford's ideas in terms of interstellar travel are sort of by definition a long way off. Um, uh, and, you know, I mean, Neil's Tall Tower um, it, it is a terrific image and a great challenge in terms of engineering theory. Uh, but the 20-kilometer tower that, that, that makes, yeah. that makes uh, space travel easier because you can launch from 20 kilometers up. On the one hand, is it's, you know, we have an Eiffel Tower. Obviously, there could be a tower this big. Well, I mean, one of the part of the point of his story is that's not so obvious. Um, you know, that that, that I, I put further off. If it were to happen, I would put further off in the future than he puts it. And I forget, when does he put it? Yeah, it is. It's like in the next 50 years or something, if I remember. Yeah. Right. 
Yeah, you know that one. Just in terms of you know, just at the sitting at the sitting at the table and and making calculations and and trying to figure out you know whether this could work and so on. I think if one actually tried to implement, there would be a lot more problems to to, to be solved to be found there. But um, you know, that's just you know. I, I mean, I I have an undergrad math degree and a pretty good science background, but I'm not a scientist. So. So is your um, have you already started working on the is, is the next uh, project uh, or uh, the bigger uh, project on the horizon and the, another book? Um, well, it's another book, and also uh, we want to uh, take it to more media, to 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 film and television. Um, and we are figuring out where to go. I mean, we're, we've just barely finished our book tour, so <laughs> I myself am just coming up for air. Well, thank you very much for for sharing one of your you know your for breaking your uh, your post book tour uh, relaxation with uh, with <laughs> me and uh, and our listeners. Um, so thank you, yeah, thank you very much. It's been it's been great, and um, I uh, I wish you the best of luck with this and your your ongoing work. Uh, you're welcome. Uh, I've been speaking with Catherine Kramer, co-editor uh, with Ed Finn of a new collection of short stories called Hieroglyph Stories and Visions for a Better Future. And uh, there'll be a link to uh, Project Hieroglyph website, the website, uh, and I'll try to put a link up to Neil Stevenson's uh, essay that uh, describes some of his ideas that, uh, that also form the, um, the preface to the book. Yeah, I think my my introduction or the my uh, speech at Google is also online, which gives a sort of messianic vision of what it is we're trying to do. Excellent. So I'll put a link to that as well. Perfect. Thank thank you, Catherine. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Our webpage is newbooksinsciencefiction.com. And don't forget to like us on our Facebook page or subscribe to us on iTunes and leave a nice review if you're in the mood. And you can also... <laughs> Follow us on Twitter at New Books Sci-Fi. I'm Rob Wolf, author of The Alternate Universe, which is not dystopic, by the way. Uh, you can drop me a note on the New Books in Science Fiction and Fantasy Facebook page. Uh, you could also go to my website, robwolf.net. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter, Rob Wolf Books. So thank you very much for listening. Let me say in coming weeks, I've invited Alex London on the show to talk about his books, Proxy and Guardian, and Cameron Hurley to talk about her new book, The Mirror Empire. So stay tuned. See you in a couple weeks. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.